It was the early 90s and a South African serial killer was on the loose. On a rampage of rape and murder, he sent a Johannesburg suburb of women running for cover in blood-curdling terror. In a deadly game of cat and mouse, investigative journalist Janine Lazarus was used by the police as a decoy to trap the Norwood serial killer. If we're to believe that journalists should shape the news, not make it, Lazarus broke just about every rule in newsroom ethics as she became increasingly obsessed with Quibus Galdenais. In True Crime Memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer, Lazarus gives a personal account of the fascinating pre-digital era of the 1990s newsroom ethics and questionable police procedures. To Catch a Serial Killer is the official companion podcast series, a jackpot production featuring Janine Lazarus, Jacaranda FM News editor Marius van der Velt, as well as various guest contributors. The human fascination with serial killers and the reasons why they do what they do stretches back decades. Think Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and then our very own subject on which this series is largely based, the Norwood serial killer, Kubis Haldenace. Over five episodes, we'll delve into the minds of people like Haldenace. We'll look at those who got up close and personal with him and those who were there to tell the story, as well as the historic context of that time in South Africa. In this episode, myself and author Janine Lazarus, who made a name as one of South Africa's finest investigative journalists back in the early 90s, speak to Dr. Gerard Labaskagni, a former head of the police's psychiatric unit and the author of the book Profiler Diaries. Janine quotes Dr. Labaskagni in a book, and he spent four years doing a thesis on over 130 serial killers. We explore the nature versus nurture debate. So, Janine, I want us to just start with setting the scene. So, we're 1992, right? We are. South Africa is on the precipice of democracy. Not quite there. Madiba's out of prison. Right. But we haven't had our elections. No. So, obviously, I mean, if you think now politics is big, politics was absolutely everything at that time. And then there was the story. There was. There was a a rapist who was prowling through a neighborhood in which I lived and loved. But the story, the rapes were tucked away in the inside pages of newspapers. There was a much bigger narrative at that time. We were all voting yes in the referendum. Madeba, as you said, had been liberated. There was, over that time, a very, very public divorce between him and Winnie. The Boy Patok massacre happened. F.W. de Klerk and Madiba were awarded the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, the townships were in flames. So there was a much more important story happening in South Africa. And that is what was driving the news narrative. And not a random seal killer in, in, in the north of Joburg? No. Uh, not a random serial killer in the north of Joburg. I stumbled on the story by default. I lived there and the editor was furious that as the crime reporter I didn't pick up on it. And I made some limping excuse that the story had been tucked away in other daily newspapers. I was working for a Sunday, a Sunday spread and he wouldn't, he wouldn't buy that. So I became involved in the story. Now, Dr. Gerard, serial killing or serial killers in, in South Africa, is it something that's unusual? Um, you know, I think every country has them. The question is, are you looking for them? And do you have the capability to link different cases to each other? 
So if you're in a country that doesn't have a DNA laboratory, a DNA database, fingerprint database, ballistics databases, and just really in general say an ineffective police service, you're not necessarily going to pick up that you have a serial active in your area or a very high, if you have a generally high murder rate, you know, again, people might not be picking up that certain ones are linked to each other. So I would say every country has them. Any country that says they don't aren't looking. And I think in South Africa, we've had a double-edged sword. We do have a lot, but I also think since 1994, around about there, we've also increased our capabilities of actually being able to pick them up. So would you say maybe back in 1992, it wasn't as effective as it is now? Without a doubt. I mean, 92, we didn't yet have the investigative psychology unit, which specifically was created, I think around about 94, 95, to help with this increase in suddenly these serials that we seem to be noticing. And of course, since then, we've trained detectors on how to identify them, how to investigate them. Our DNA system has improved even since then. Well, back in 92, we didn't have really DNA in, in the forensic capacity in South Africa. So definitely changes in our processing of DNA has also increased our ability to pick them up. So I wouldn't say per se we've had more than we've ever had before, but I think, again, we're just better at linking and identifying series. Jeanine, I love how you, you describe Kuebis. You, you call him bland. So we've already established, and I think that's maybe something that even people who don't really know a lot about serial killers know that most serial killers are men. But you, you always describe him as this, like, this bland person that you wouldn't, like, if he walked past you in the street, you wouldn't give him a second glance. Well, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't the monster that I had conjured up in my mind because everybody, well, I would Im imagine most ordinary folk like myself, you imagine a monster with red devil eyes and sharpened teeth, and he was anything but. Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't know why, but the serial killers always kind of think that Jeffrey Dahmer, to me, he looks evil. Does he not? For me, he does. He, he looks like I would not want to be caught in a dark alley with him. Fair enough. But I mean, Ted Bundy was a really good looking guy. You know, um, Ted Bundy was extremely attractive in my mind anyway. So it's just that they don't look like your nightmares. And this guy, Quibus, was just bland. He was diluted vanilla. Diluted vanilla. I love that. That is such an amazing way to describe him. Dr. Gerald, then that takes us obviously to these common characteristics, whether there's a way to, to spot a serial killer. Is there a thread that runs through it or is it each one to his own? Um, you know, I spent quite a number of years before I joined the police interviewing sort of four or five serial murderers. And then once I was in the police, I worked on over 110 different series. And to be honest with you, I can't really f see that there is a very clear common thread. You'll get some that fit that pattern of this guy had this horrific upbringing, abused beyond the norm, and then from a young age started doing things to other people, etc. And that's kind of what we all perceive serial murderers' pathway to their killings to become. So they will get some that are like that, but a lot of them just didn't seem to be like that, at least in South Africa. You know, uh, they have kind of upbringings that might not have been great, but they really aren't different to what a lot of other people in our country are also experiencing, but they're not going out and hurting a single person. So, you know, I don't know. And I think that's what I said. I almost gave up trying to figure out why does person, a person become a serial because I've, there's just maybe different pathways to getting there. Is it some, some people it's more your circumstances and other people it's more your biology. But I don't know of a single serial murderer whose father was a serial murderer. So, you know, the, the direct genetic link that you pass it on, then how can we're not seeing it in that person's family history. But, but the point, though, Gerard, is, you know, I, 
I wonder what separates us ordinary folk from morphing into killers, perhaps not serial killers. Mm. But I mean, I felt rage. You see road rage Mm. devolve into something. I've seen a lover's tiff where a woman is murdered, Mm. you know, because she said something with a single gunshot. So what is it? that separates us from them. I think what you described, the examples you gave there, and I know you were just a quick two or three examples, were all backed by a massive amount of anger that overwhelmed you at that time. You know, the road rage, you've all mm. felt like you, you want to get out and you know, do something to that person, or you, know, you, you come home and find your partner in bed with someone else. So we can all experience rage and react, but these people aren't experiencing rage. They're taking their time to think about and fantasize and decide, I'm going to go and do this in a very calculating way. So they're not being overwhelmed by their emotions at that time that causes them to go out and do this. And I think for the most of us, our emotions can get better of us very temporarily. But then before and afterwards, we would think, what did I do? Or I would never do that, and I don't want to do it again. And that sort of, that sort of moral superego, if you want to get all Freudian, that's, that guilt sense that stops us from doing things in life that, we don't, that make us feel bad. So then what the picture you're painting is of some, somebody who is incredibly cold and calculating. Is that what serial killers are? I mean, do, are, they, are they clever people? Are they super intelligent? Because getting into somebody's home or, or surveilling a neighborhood isn't exactly easy. Finding a target isn't e- easy unless it's a random killing. So are they clever people? I mean, are these are highly intelligent individuals? I think that's often the sort of image that's portrayed i mean if you watch i mean even movies and television have sort of influenced academic academic studies of of serial killers and serial murderers i think you're going to get the spectrum like you get in society with normal people you'll get a large majority that are kind of bland and normal average intelligence some that are not so bright and some that are super smart i can't really say the ones that for example i did some IQ testing on that. It was a very small sample. Uh, they were all normal, you know, really? kind of 90 to 110. And yes, of course, you'll get ones that are smarter than that. I think sometimes it's it's often a case of the, the policing isn't that great initially, which is why they also get away with it for perhaps longer than we would like. But I think the spectrum of intelligence is going to be kind of mirroring the normal average pers- uh, population sort of spectrum of intelligence. You speak about us ordinary folk having, you know, a flash of anger. Road rage is an example. But we are able to kind of draw a particular line. With a serial killer, clearly, I, if, I, if I understand you correctly, there is no drawing of that proverbial line in the sand. Is there any feeling of remorse? Do they feel recrimination? Do they feel empathy? So I can't really say, are the ones that I experienced that I ever really felt any of them were really, really remorseful. You know, what have I done? How could I have done that type of emotions? Um, I mean, it's not to say that serial killers don't have emotions and don't feel happiness and sadness and anger, etc. that we all feel. But I think it's maybe not attached to the same things that we are. We experience those emotions towards. So I can't say, like I said, now I don't think I've ever really encountered one that broke down and really cried and felt so sorry for what they've done. They often have their excuses. Women have treated me badly. Satoli said that. Richard knows of this quarry serial murder literally down the road from from your studio here in, at jacaranda sort of a woman gave me hiv so i'm going to go and do whatever i want so they often have the justifications which i think soothes their own you know gets perhaps gets helps them get over those little hurdles towards doing something this horrific but not really a sense of remorse that i can say i've ever really encountered out of any of them but then it goes into 
the nature versus nurture kind of debate as well, right? It touches on that mm-hmm. in terms of are there things in their childhood, the way they were treated. You know, pop psychology would kind of tell you Bates Motel, the mother was this all-consuming person and therefore uh, you hate women and you go out and you, you kill loads of them, right? So that's the nature versus nurture debate. That is it something that they were born with? Or is it experiences that they had through, through their childhood that, that ended up numbing them to things that we would not be numb to? I think the best way I can try and answer this, I think certain people, for whatever reasons, are born with this sort of potential to get into becoming a serial murderer. I think what happens to them in their life would make them get, them, get there faster or maybe can help them to not get there ever at all. So I do think it's not a case of it's one or the other. I think there's inherent potential that we don't know why it's there, where it comes from, why does this person have it versus another person not having it, and that what happens in your life, as I said, just pushes you closer and further down that pathway. And maybe if you grew up in a really loving, caring family, it would perhaps hopefully slow down and maybe always, maybe perhaps rather allow you to, to live it out in terms of your fantasy life without actually having to go and act it out. There's no scientific studies that prove that. I don't think there ever will be unless we find some gene that we're not yet capable of identifying that we see in all serials that aren't present in the rest of us. I don't know. So here's a question from me, Gerard. During my research for my book, there's this weird triumvirate that seems to present itself in serial killers. And maybe it's just something that I stumbled upon. But that they bed wet as children, they torture animals and they set fire. Is that just too glib? Um, so that's the McDonald triad, and that was kind of very popular, I think, in the sort of 60s and 70s. Uh, and it was originally more looking at whether or not you're going to become a psychopath. That kind of the people have backed away from that theory, and I think people then automatically extrapolated into serial murder because surely all serial murderers are psychopaths, which they're, they're not actually. Um, so I always say that, yes, if you have a child who's torturing animals or setting fire to things, that's not good no matter what. And that kid should be probably seen by a professional for whatever reason. That's not to say that they're going to come and become a serial murderer or whatever, but I think that child has issues, without a doubt, that need to be looked at professionally. But definitely in South Africa, we haven't seen that nice classic sort of triangle of behaviors in the history of, I can't think really any that I can say I've seen that in our serials. Is it because we just don't know about that history in them that nobody told us? That's, of course, always a possibility. Are there common characteristics? I mean, we've discussed almost overarching all serial killers. We've discussed a lack of remorse. I mean, what are the others? Um, yeah, so a lot, of, yeah, a lot of them have a lack of remorse for what they've done or just feel that it's justified. <sighs> are they charismatic? Some are, some aren't. I mean, some are boring as a plank and other people are... I mean, you had the DJ Heine von Royen in Neisner, very popular with the ladies, good-looking guy, social, outgoing, etc. Murdered two young girls in the space of a month, you know, raped and murdered them. Um, then you have sort of Richard Neuser, as I said, down the road here, the quarry serial murderer, who's kind of like odd and boring. They're going to have, again, this, this range of personalities, um, but they're not what you expect. Well, I think with all the crimes I worked on the police, whether it was serial or not, specifically the, the very violent sort of murders, you have an image, or, and I always had to stop myself not to develop an image in my mind what this person must be like. Because I was always, and I don't know why, disappointed or surprised when I met this person and they were the complete opposite of what you expect. I just want to take a, a step back because something that you said, Dr. Jared, I found very interesting. There was this guy that, that killed two women. So how do we classify serial killer? Is it five people? Is it ten people? Is there a threshold? 
That definition has been debated a lot in the academia. And in 2005, I think it was, the FBI held a symposium where they invited a bunch of people from law enforcement throughout the world to come and meet in San Antonio and sit and discuss a lot of these issues and the myths. And we kind of get some consensus on the definition. I was very fortunate enough to be invited to that. And what came out of that um, symposium, which, which again, was kind of a consensus of a lot of experts throughout the world on the topic, is that a serial murderer is someone who kills two people on a separate occasion. So one person a day, and you kill the second person the following day, or the following point in time, in a separate incident. Of course, you will get those who are motivated, like Moses Atole, by the sexual angle, or Kuba Skaldenes by the sexual angle. You'll get other ones who are the paid taxi hitman. You'll get ones who are doing it for insurance money. But they're all serials, but of a different type. Now, we often just think of serials as the Ted Bundys and the Moses Atoles. And yes, that's a huge chunk, and that's a huge chunk in South Africa. But killing two or more people, again, on separate occasions, is the, the core definition of a serial. And that's what we even present in court in, I think, 2007 with the PE sex worker killer, Rian Stander. And we said in court, he's a serial, and this is our definition, and the court accepted that. So that's even been put through our court systems here, that two separate murders, you're regarded as a serial, but your motive might be different. Like I said, you've got the Satoles motivated by sex, and other people motivated by different reasons. So I've got a question. What is it that drives them? Are there voices in their heads? Is it a compulsion that occurs at a particular time of day what what is that urge that compels them to wreak havoc we know it's not mental illness in the sense of schizophrenia which is not multiple personalities because people often think it is but voices in their heads etc we know in terms of almost every single one of our serial murderers there's only ever been two and we probably have had about 200 documented in South African history, 200 different serial murderers. Two that have a documented history of mental illness. One was, I think, Francois Potheter in Potchefstroom many, many, many years ago. And then more recently, in about, I think it was 2011, uh, Pendile in Chungwana in Durban, who was actually an ex-Blue Bulls rugby player. The Blue Bulls people hate him when I say that. <laughs> but I always feel obliged to point it out. Um, and he had a long-standing documented history of schizophrenia years before he ever killed the four people that he killed in the space of about eight days in, in March, I think it was 2011. And then try to kill two or three more other people before that and after that and kidnapped and raped a young woman for a couple of days before that series started. And that was a big debate in court. But is this not because of his mental illness? And ultimately, it's not just mental illness. You have to prove the mental illness was directly linked to those actions. And the prosecution was able to successfully argue that his mental illness had nothing to do with him going out and killing these people. So it's definitely not mental illness. Um, That doesn't mean that these people are normal, of course. But it's not the mental illness isn't what is causing them to go and commit these various acts. So what is it? It's something that develops definitely over many, many, many years. Uh, We often talk about the developing fantasy that they sort of slowly work towards and try out various things until they ultimately go and commit the first murder and very much centered around power and control over another human being. You speak about power and control. So how big a role does rape play in serial killers, especially in South Africa? I mean, rape is about power and control. So, yeah, absolutely. And the majority of our South African serial murderers are the ones that have that sexual element, and that sexual element is usually in, expressed by rape of the victim. You know, there are a couple that have just shot their victims, like uh, the saloon killer in Popo many, many years ago, before I started the police in 2001, who just shot victims. We've had, who I think there are a couple others, that there was no obvious sexual interaction with the victim at all. But I would say like 98% of our South African serials are going to be a sexual element in that series of crimes. And how does that then compare to international? Um, I think a 
probably the, the, the majority of overseas ones are also going to have a strong sexual component. But again, we had the Beltway snipers in D.C. who yes. just shot people from a distance, you know, with a, through a, a so-called sniper rifle. So there are those out there that definitely fall in the definition of serial, but the, there's no obvious. I mean, had there an underlying sexual thing that they didn't want to tell us about? Of course, but in looking at the crime scene, there's no clear sexual motive. So a question I've got for you. I mean, are South African serial killers different to their cu- counterparts in the UK or in, in the Soviet Union. I went to Russia on uh, the Citizen X, uh, Andrei Chikatilo serial killer. They called him the, the butcher of Rostov, the cannibal killer. What makes a South African serial killer different from other serial killers? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a few ways. And, and one of the most important ways is actually their modus operandi. And again, it reflects our socioeconomic circumstances. I mean, with almost boring regularity, our serial rapists and serial murderers would approach a a woman on the street and offer them a job. And they would go with this individual either that that same point in time or they would meet them the following day, go home, get your CV, meet me here, bring your ID book tomorrow, and then go off with an individual and at some point go into the felt where they would be raped and murdered or in the case of a serial rapist, just raped. And that's kind of like, and my colleagues overseas go like, but why would any woman go with a stranger. They look at me like how that would never happen in, in the Netherlands or in the States, etc. But they don't have the high levels of unemployment we have and desperate people looking for money. And if they think that you can offer them a job, you don't even have to look classy and well-spoken. If they just think there's a possibility you can get them a job, they'll go with you. So that's one of the biggest things that makes South Africans different. So there definitely is something where the country kind of reflects its serial killers. Yeah, and, 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 but in terms of like who they are, you know, we find the distribution is, of gender is pretty much the same. The average age of our South African serial murders when they start is about 29, 30, much older than people originally kind of thought. And that's kind of similar to the U.S. You know, obviously our victim dynamics is different because it's, a, I mean, if you go to China, they're not going to be all white females. They're going to be obviously Chinese people who are being murdered. So that's, again, reflective of your country. So that's, in some ways, we are similar to our offenders uh, and our victimology to overseas. In some ways, we're different. But the biggest thing, like I said, is how our guys go out. And now they'll typically leave the body out in the felt. They don't have vehicles, so you have to use a con story. Where an American serial murder, if you have a vehicle, you can get a prostitute into your car, drive off somewhere, kill them, and then go dump their body 100 miles away. Our guys don't have vehicles. They're low socioeconomic offenders. So they have to lure the victim through a con story, and they walk on foot. They might take a taxi, maybe, but they usually walk on foot to a location that he is predetermined to then kills them and leaves them there. Whereas American serial murders of vehicles are more likely to have multiple locations because they can move around with the vehicle with their vehicle. They're doing peace jobs, really. Yeah, they're doing typically doing peace jobs. Are most South African serial killers from a low socioeconomic background? You know, you get the exceptions like Kubis Heldness, who was an employed policeman. We had, I think it was funny here for... Also around the, the early 90s, who was a policeman who was killing people. So here and there, you do get people who have a, a more of a full-time job, but the overwhelming majority of people are not full-time employed. Question from, from me. I mean, we've discussed the power dynamic. With your work with serial killers, and I know you spent many, many years interviewing many of them. You worked with over 110 serials. How did they describe their feeling? I mean, how did they feel once the ultimate taboo was committed, once they'd killed somebody? Was it sexual gratification? Was it elation? Was it power? Was it relief? What do they feel? Is there a generic emotion? You know, I don't think I encountered very few that felt as if that was what they wanted. And I think that's often the thing. The reality is different to your fantasy. In the fantasy, you can create everything perfectly. You are the strongest, the best, 
the most you know, robust and can perform for a long time and the victim does this and that. The reality is never quite like that, which is partly why they say serials do it over and over and over because they're trying to get that exact feeling that they want. I know, for example, if you look at the Velcom killers, Martin von Merab and Sinead van Heerden, who lured a boy to the, a young guy to the graveyard in Velcom and then killed him, cut him up, skinned him. And they said, you know, they were hoping to get this feeling that they always read that, you know, serials get these, this amazing, overwhelming, like I suppose endorphin rush, I don't know, when they kill and they didn't feel that at all. But then, yes, someone like Stuart Wilk and Butty Boot from Port Elizabeth in the 90s, and he, he got this ultimate orgasm by only raping his victims and feeling their sort of, their bodies sort of, as he's strangling them, their bodies sort of having this last death throes of shuddering, that gave him his sort of ultimate orgasm. So for him, that actual process gave him that pleasure. So is there an element where it's like a drug? So you, they must say if the, the first time you take the drug, it, it, it's great, and then drug addicts spend the rest of their lives trying to recreate the first time that they had that high. Is there an element of that with serial killers as well, where, with their first killing? I don't think I've ever had one that described it in that way, but I do think it's, it's a good analogy that it, you want to try it again to see if you can get whatever you hope to get out of it. So I think it's perhaps a good comparison. Yeah. yeah. When I covered the story as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed crime reporter, serial killers weren't very much known in South Africa yet. I mean, it was, it was, I think Kourbis Haldanes was pretty much at the cusp of it. Why was that? I mean, surely there were serial killers before, but we were living in a repressive regime. Yeah. Black women or black victims were not given names. They were part of a homogenous mass. I mean, have there been serial killers committing violence amongst us that perhaps because of, of the times were not reported on, their victims were not reported on. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, we definitely, it's documented in Johannesburg, and I think the mid-1930s, Cornelius Berger, who was killing sex workers in Johannesburg, and there's actually a fascinating book I discovered from 1957 by a guy who then had just retired as the head detective for South Africa, Ulf Boerbach, colonel, and um, he actually was the lead investigator in that case, and I totally just stumbled upon this book the other day, and it was fascinating read and he was the head lead investigator of that and it was again this guy targeted sex workers because they had given him some other std and he was getting his revenge on them by killing and he kept little souvenirs of the victims that they found in his house etc and married guy with the job etc so definitely you know that's definitely one of the earliest documented ones 1951 or 53 where eliphazium saw me again was approaching women offering them jobs luring them away raping and killing them we had nur ahmed in i think it's the late 60s in cape town who was a you know raping and killing young boys much like the station strangler cases so yes we didn't we didn't call it serial because i don't think we yet had a term for it i think the term serial murderer or serial killer was really only became sort of a concept i think probably in the in the mid 80s maybe you spoke about taking trophies. I mean, is that something serial killers always do? Their signature, their signature murders, do they take something with them to almost relive their experiences? We've definitely had some that have done that. I wouldn't say every single one. We've picked it up that they've done that, no. But definitely some in South Africa have done that. Kept underwear. Stuart Walken that I mentioned a moment ago, Butibur from PE, he kept the underwear of his victims and he would masturbate and then 
throw them away at some particular point in time. You know, even this, the so-called Sunday rapist, Yakustain, from a few years ago here in Gauteng, I mean, he was keeping items of clothing and, and arbitrary things that belong to his victims you take. So those are definitely, the, as you say, souvenirs that it's a reminder. It helps them relive. They often would masturbate again, and this touching or looking at the object would help them sort of st- stimulate that sort of those memories. Not all of them, but we have had it here, and it is documented throughout the world um, that people that serials do do that. Can serial killers ever be remediated? Can they be rehabilitated to become, I wouldn't say a good corporate citizen, but can they ever get better? I don't think so, no. We don't know what makes them serials, so how do we unserial them? It's too much of a risk. I mean, if you've gone and murdered 5, 10, 15 people, I would say if you want to give him a second chance to be released back into society, you're giving people a first chance of being murdered. And they're not living a criminal lifestyle. You know, besides the murders, they very often aren't really involved in crime at all, which is why people are always so surprised when somebody's arrested for such a horrific murder. But he's such a nice guy. He was my neighbor. He was helpful. He was a good employee if he worked for you, for example. So, you know, they're not living that criminal lifestyle. Um, So why do we think that because they weren't behaving badly in prison, that's a good benchmark of what they're going to be like when they're released. Just another thing. I mean, the crime genre has become almost, it's got a cult-like status. Do serial killers, I was a reporter at the time, covering the Norwood serial killer, do they read their media coverage? Do they get off on it? Yeah, definitely. We've had quite a number that have said to us that they have, uh, they read and watched what was going on in the news, going back to the crime scenes while the, when the body is discovered to see what the police are doing. Um, without a doubt, yeah. No. And you also spoke about about a serial killer who was married. In doing my research for the book, I saw some American serial killers who had very stable families, children in private schools. Some of them looked after neglected animals by night or by day. Some of them were great babysitters or opened up refuges for drug addicts. I mean, these are ran campaigns for people who were depressed. What's that about? Yeah, look, I mean... 60% of our South African serial murders are in a relationship at the time when they are committing their murders. So it's not this image of this lone, twisted guy who can't come right with a woman or a man and now goes out and wreaks their havoc and revenge. But uh, yeah, it it kind of links what we're saying now, that they're they're just in general not living their criminal, a criminal life of robbing, stealing, hijacking. Then we'd all go, yeah, I'm not surprised this guy went and killed someone. And I think it's in a way, if you look, for example, like pedophiles, you can have pedophiles who are incredibly successful in their work, CEOs of companies. They're not going on punching their wives if they have wives and, and committing fraud, but they have this sexual interest that's obviously regarded as deviant uh, by the law and by society. And, and I think that's the kind of a parallel I, I like to try and explain with serial murderers. They just have this particular urge that is there for whatever reasons. It's developed over many, many years, but it doesn't mean that they want to do all other manner of bad things. So in other words, they have a double life. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's a double life, which is people why people often say, oh, they have multiple personalities because he's such a nice guy here, and then he goes and does these horrible things. He must have multiple personality disorder. No, not at all. It's the same person. He's just acting and expressing himself differently in different ways. So as we start grabbing up, one question that I still have is, do they want to get caught? Is there an element of them wanting to outfox the police for as long as possible, or... Do they actually want to get caught? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good and an often asked question. There have been cases where people have left messages on the scene, help me before I kill again or catch me before I kill again, please. But I think more often than not, what you see is if a serial murderer is getting away with it, it's 
due to bad policing. I mean, a, if you caught all your murderers after the first murder, you wouldn't have serial murderers, would you? Or serial rapists, for that matter. So the higher your victim count gets, it's a reflection of the quality of your policing. And very often what happens is once it kind of gets out of hand, a team gets put together and they catch the person very quickly, like we typically would happen in South Africa. So I don't think so. I think it's sloppy policing. I think often in South Africa, they don't know what techniques we can use to catch them. So this is often why when we do catch them, it's, it's not necessarily through very sophisticated stuff. It's DNA, it's cell phones, etc. So no, I don't think it's that they overwhelmingly want to get caught but there can be one or two people who perhaps do have that feeling. Yeah, I mean, Kweba said that he was tired when he was arrested. He shrugged his shoulders. He described it as a relief. Yeah, and I know he, for example, had, had said, you know, that, you know, the whole issue of them fingerprinting the people, that he kind of said, well, I'm going to stand. When it's my turn, I'll just tell them it's me because they're going to find out anyway. And for whatever reason, that didn't proceed on that day. And he's like, oh, well, OK. So, yeah, I mean, I, some of them have said this was my last one or I'm glad I'm caught. Is that generally so? Or are they trying to sort of find favor? We'll, we'll never know. We have to do we decide do we believe these people or not. So I think it's, it's possible that maybe this does start to weigh on their consciousness after a while. And by the way, is it a get-out-of-jail-free card? Excuse the pun, because most of them seem to say they've given their life, lives over to the Lord. I mean, and, and, and Quibus was no exception. Yeah, I mean, I've had other ones here in South Africa. And, you know, I think also they're not stupid. And it's interesting how often this happens close to their parole hearings. And unfortunately, uh, they, you know, very often there are religious people sitting on the parole panels that, in my opinion, are very naively believing this type of stuff. And that's not how you determine someone's risk, how much they love God, because the prison is full of a lot of priests, pastors, duomenes who have done horrible things to children. These charismatic pastors we see mm. in the TV nowadays who are regularly getting arrested for raping of their parishioners. So, you know, I think we have to be very careful about using religion. I don't know of any scientific risk assessment tool that has a little block there, does this person suddenly found God or not? And, and that's a risk-reducing factor. For more on the Norwood serial killer, check out Bait to Catch a Killer. In episode 2, we'll explore the newsroom of the 1990s when Janine was writing about Kubis Galdenes and how those looked very different to the ones of today. We'll be joined by Anton Harbour, Caxton Professor of Journalism at WITS and one of the people best placed to debate and discuss journalism and reporting over the past 35-odd years. You've been listening to To Catch a Serial Killer, the official companion podcast series to Janine Lazarus' true crime memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer. For easy access to future episodes, subscribe via your favorite podcast app or via jackpod.co.za.